to this computer. Hi, Josh. Thanks so much for joining us today. Hey, Danya. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And I want to just do a quick introduction for everyone who's listening. Uh, in the aftermath, um, Josh Miller is a senior associate at Blue Venture Investors. Uh, he's also a graduate of uh, the MBA program at Georgetown University. Uh, but Blue Venture Investors is a venture capital investment company that supports early stage entrepreneurs in the mid-Atlantic region. So when you think about Maryland, Virginia, D.C., and North Carolina, uh, but Josh, as you mentioned, also New York, um, they typically invest between 500000 to a million in a single round, uh, but when larger financing rounds are needed, they actively look to syndicate deals with other investment groups in their network. Um, and Blue Venture investors have a goal of accelerating successful exits for both companies, founders, and investors alike. Blue's investing in companies like ID.me, uh, ID.me, <laughs> True Made Food, Urgent.ly, uh, Revive, Superfoods, Senseware, and Laprix. So um, I hope I pronounced those right, but Josh, thank you for joining us today. Yeah. And I wanted no, to- No, I think, I think you nailed it. Great. <laughs> right. I was going to say, I want to pass the floor over to you just in terms of uh, filling in kind of the gaps from that little spiel of maybe a high level from you. And I know we're going to keep this more conversational based off of the questions people submitted, but uh, I want to give you the yeah. floor. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, I'll, I'll fill in a few pieces there, um, I, but high level, uh, you did nail it. Um, we are, you know, uh, the firm is based in, in DC. I do work out of New York. Um, Mid-Atlantic has um, traditionally been our focus, um, but uh, we've kind of in the last, let's say, two or three years really kind of um, extended our reach uh, beyond that, uh, getting uh, involved in companies um, across North America. We, we, we almost tend to think of ourselves as a non-Silicon Valley um, investor at this point, um, but we do put a kind of extra star um, for companies that are in our backyard. Um, so that means, you know, mid-Atlantic because uh, we do enjoy working um, closely with the companies we invest in. Um, so that's a big, big plus. Um, yeah. And I think the one thing I'll add is, uh, you know, just as a structure and kind of maybe interesting to some folks on how Blue is organized. Um, we have two investment vehicles. Um, Blue is traditionally an angel network group, um, meaning that we syndicate across a group of our angel partners who are all former executives either um, of uh, startups themselves or, or um, uh, big kind of corporate uh, entities, uh, but all kind of in the high tech space. Um, we also have a, a fund uh, that we, it's our first fund that we raised um, and closed on last uh, last May. And it's specifically cybersecurity focused. And um, that's a big part of what Blue invests in. Um, it's about half of our um, portfolio. We have 64 active um, investments at this time, and 32 of those are um, cyber or kind of cyber adjacent type companies. Um, IDME, as you mentioned, is, is a big one of those, um, and there's a few others in the portfolio as well. Uh, but I spend most of my time these days um, focusing on cybersecurity. Uh, other of my um, colleagues do kind of um, focus on what we consider mainly B2B SaaS. We have some outliers in that in that group as well. Uh, True Made Foods being um, a local company that does not fit the traditional SaaS model, um, but that is kind of the, the general investment thesis. Um, so yeah, uh, that's all I would add. That's awesome. No, I, I appreciate that. And I also appreciate the caveat on what uh, Blue Venture Investors, their thesis is. Yeah. But you also addressed, like, for example, True Made Food and how they don't necessarily fit within your thesis, but how did they get a yes from blue venture investors if if it doesn't fit within their thesis and maybe you can extend that beyond to how does a startup company who is looking for investment and it doesn't fit necessarily within a investor's thesis pilot that conversation yeah no it's it's a good question um i think you'll find that a lot of um a lot of funds will have a few outliers um and, you know, I think there's there's probably a million ways to answer that question. Um, you know, with the, the True Made um, uh, example, you know, that was one that was introduced to us through our network um, and uh, through a, a friendly uh, venture capital firm um, that we have syndicated with on a few different deals. 
um, you know, again, we, we took a look at it, um, you know, first being, you know, I'd say skeptical, just given that it didn't fit our, our traditional um, SaaS focus. But as we dove into the business and, and really tried to get smart on it, um, just given uh, how interested, you know, our, our trusted partner was in, in the round, uh, we quickly, you know, decided it was a good opportunity to get a part of. And um, as far as, you know, advice to startups who um, want to, you know, find um, investors that don't have, um, they don't fit their thesis doesn't fit their business. Um, you know, frankly, I would I would say like it shouldn't be your starting point um, because it's it is difficult. Like again, this was kind of a, a unique scenario where um, it was through another VC. So oftentimes, I think you'll find that startups that don't fit the thesis of a of a VC probably got introduced maybe from another VC or had some special circumstances um, in, in the network. Doesn't mean don't target those, but there's a lot of VC groups out there that probably do fit uh, their thesis does fit your business. And I would spend most of my time um, focusing on those. And sometimes through syndications and stuff, you may call on some other investors. Um, the other thing is like, you know, look at your network. Um, so if there are investors in your network already that, um, that even if they are in a firm that's thesis doesn't fit your company, because you have a contact there, you know, it's a, it's a good way to start. And I'd say the worst thing that can come from that scenario is they say no, uh, but that they passed you on to someone that, that does fit the thesis. So, um, you know, again, I wouldn't go out of my way to like contact uh, or firms that aren't really a fit, but um, at the same time, um, you know, use, use your entire network to kind of make those early introductions if you can. Yeah, no, that uh, definitely makes sense. And I think you kind of touched on a, when you talk about thesis, but B, like, where's that fit between the company and the thesis? That's a really important starting point. I've also heard that in conversations, it's important to have specific talking points to understand if there is a fit between an investor and a company, uh, yeah. including thesis, including check size, what they invest in. Can you share maybe what are the main question points that you should, as a founder, want to check off to make sure that there's synergies between the the founder and, and an investor, whether they be angel or an investment group like Blue? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I mean, simply put, do your homework, um, because when you go into these meetings, you want to you want to feel very confident that you know the firm and you know, the firm is going to get um, a, you know, a, a better, uh, more positive feeling from you. If, if it's clear that you understand um, the thesis of, of the firm uh, of the fund and, you know, the, the easy things are, you know, check size, um, you know, stage, are they a seed or series A or, you know, growth stage? Um, you know, what type of companies are they investing in? Like for us, you know, is it cybersecurity, B2B SaaS, or is it uh, CPG? Like understanding that, you know, thematic focus is obviously important. The next thing though, which is, I think takes more time is, is understanding what value you think that firm can add to you that isn't monetary related. Um, because, you know, it's, you know, venture capitalists are not just going to be um, an asset as far as the capital they give you. Obviously, that's a very important part. But good VCs make introductions for their companies. They, they could bring them into their networks. They introduce them to the other portfolio companies. So, you know, when you're when you go into a meeting with a, a VC, you should really spend a lot of time um, thinking about why why you want that VC to be on your cap table and you know very clearly express that um to that group when you're speaking to them um and i think that takes a little bit more homework um but i think it does um it, it's a, it will help you yield better results when it comes to fundraising yeah so maybe even what i'm taking from that is beyond the high level of does this investor or group fit the check size i'm looking for the stage of the company the thesis the culture also uh, but to make sure that all in all, it's like a very holistic picture of having that prior to the conversation. Exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, there's going to be scenarios where you don't get the chance to you know do your homework before 
you meet a VC or something. Um, and obviously that's understandable, but yeah, if, if there's a meeting set up, um, do, do as much homework you can for those. And I mean, fundraising is hard. It takes a lot of work and, um, it takes a lot of research to do it right. So, but you know, the time you put into each meeting and again, like identifying the, the, um, the firms that you want to be in front of and making sure that you're spending the most time on preparing yourself for those meetings is important. I would say at what point do you bring up terms? At what point should I, should I be bringing up on our first conversation that we've ever had and I'll I'll into relationship building with investors. But prior to that part of our conversation, the first talk (laughs) you have where you're learning about, you know, no nap, for example, or you're learning about a startup. Do I say I'm looking to raise, you know, a $5 million round at X valuation under a safe note? Um, are you in? Like, when does that come? <laughs> no, it's a great question. Um, look, I mean, it, it, again, it's, I think is most the way I'll answer tonight is probably, uh, you know, it depends, but um sometimes like it doesn't need to be the first it shouldn't be the first thing you talk about obviously like you want to get the investor interested um but i think for investors you don't need to like one it's helpful uh like if i'm talking to a company and it's the first time and we're having like a 30 minute or an hour long call um you know it's probably worth both of our time just to understand if the valuation that you're seeking at least in the ballpark fits like what we think the market is doing. Um, because if you come in with a, if we get like three or four conversations in, and then you say like, you have this valuation that's much, much higher than um, what what I think or our firm thinks is um, is market, then, you know, that, that could quickly put it into the conversation. And we've all kind of wasted our time um, having all these talks. And um, so I think it's, it's important. You, you don't need to like terms are negotiation, right. Um, and you don't need to necessarily tell them outright, um, what your valuation is or what you think it should be, but you should be prepared to give them a ballpark uh, or a range, uh, that you're kind of thinking about. Um, and they may also ask you what you, you know, what your terms were in the last race and don't be shy. Like, I think the thing that I run into with founders a lot is that, they will be hesitant to share certain pieces of information because they think it's, you know, it's, um, you know, putting them at a disadvantage. Um, you know, whatever you raised at your last round, like me as an investor, I'm eventually going to find that out at some point in the due diligence. So, you know, just be very clear. Like, and um, again, it doesn't mean that you're going to undervalue your company. Um, but, you know, those are the certain things you should be uh, open about. But as far as what your valuation is now, you know, you should be prepared on you know an early call to to at least talk about what range you think is um, uh, acceptable, and that way we can both say, okay, well, we're somewhere in the ballpark. That's because I the thing about terms is like they don't make a deal. Like just because you have great terms doesn't mean that like I want to invest, but they can kill a deal. Um, so I think just keep that in mind. Have you had a situation where someone's undervalued their comp? their own company and you say, well, actually you should raise the valuation, right? Dilute us more because <laughs> it makes more sense. This is, this is a crazy, incredible deal. Uh, Cause I know when we think about negotiations, you usually don't want to be the first one to talk, right? Because mm-hmm. you, want, you want someone else to anchor and then you say whether or not that's crazy or not. But yeah. Have you been in the, the, the inverse? Um not i mean it's it's very rarely i come across a company that starts that starts too low i think it's often the the other way around um you know there are like there are some red flags if you do come in super low because it tells me it it maybe elicits some desperation right like has this person talked to you know 50 vcs and just been like beat up in the market over and over again and it's just like desperate to fundraise um, I've seen scenarios like that. Um, you know, it's not really my place often to like tell them to raise higher. I mean, I have given them, you know, advice that, you know, this is, this is pretty low. Like this is lower than what we've seen in the market, but I'd, I'd say like, 
you know, it's not hard to figure out like what, what market VCs are, are looking for, you know, um, you know, look at your, it's, it's easy to do a quick multiple on your, on your revenue or whatever and, and get a sense. And then even if you're a pre-revenue company, like, and just look at Y Combinator safe note, like it's a pretty good starting place, um, as far as pre-revenue companies. Um, and you may get pushed down a little bit from there, but like, there's some pretty safe areas to start. Um, I'd say like, just start there and, and see what, uh, see what happens. But if you come in on anything that's, you know, especially I think pre-revenue companies struggle with it the most because there is not a multiple in revenue. Um, and it's kind of like, a, it's very much a game of like, of an art rather than like a science because, um, and, and there's certain things that VCs look at, like, are you a, are you a first time um, founder? Um, you know, how, how innovative is, is this technology? Um, and, and things like that. But, you know, first time founders are always going to struggle to get super high valuations in most cases. Um, so, you know, there's some, again, there's things like the Y Combinator or safe that was, you know, basically designed for, for this exact purpose, which was to make, make those early stage, um, negotiations pretty easy. Uh, but again, you know, not all companies are Y Combinator companies and you may, you may have to do a little bit lower on your cap or something, but it's a good good place to start the negotiation, I'd say. Yeah, and I, I think um, lightning round too of, I understand this differs from industry to industry, but is there mm-hmm. a ballpark multiple on your revenue that you would say is market? Yeah, I mean, again, like I think generally um, in the past, like it changes um, based on what the, the market's doing. Um, but if you're growing 100% year over year, um, you know, 10x, somewhere around 10x on, on AR is pretty fair. Um, again, there may be other factors that push that down or up, but it's, again, a pretty, pretty safe starting place. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. I want to transition the conversation now a little bit more towards relationship building. Um, sure. Ask, you know, what's the best way for, um, founders to keep investors from earlier conversations engaged in your company's life cycle when it may not be the best fit to invest at the point that you start engagement. Okay. So you're, you're asking like, uh, like how to just keep the relationship going, even if it's not a good fit right now. Yeah. If it's you, you and I engage today, but I know either we're too early for you at this point or, you know, I want to keep you involved. What are the, some of the ways that that you look for in a company? Yeah, you know that that happens plenty often. Um, I think if it's a company I like, I just ask that they just you know, you know, first I offer you know anything I can do to help as far as introductions. Always ask the company for or the sorry the firm for uh, for introductions to other VCs that may be a better fit. Um, and I love when investor or sorry not investors but um founders like ping me from time to time and just give me updates like you know everyone's time is valuable we don't have to jump on a half hour call like you know every two weeks but like um if i just get an email from time to time saying hey look like this is the next this is the next thing we you know had our official product launch um we had so much in ar um you know all those things are are, are great to see and like i i track those and it's like kind of like you know, have an investor newsletter, send it out. But if there's an investor that you really like, you know, send send them some updates from time to time. You know, simple things, just pinging them, making sure that like you're on their radar. Uh, because sometimes, uh, you know, I'll talk to a company, we have a great conversation, it's not fit. And they don't, they don't like send me a message for over a year, you know. Um, and then I just kind of, if out of sight, out of mind type of thing. But the companies that, you know, stay in touch, like it's great. Like I love hearing how things are going. Um, and so that's, that's great. And then, you know, once in a while, if you have, uh, maybe it's every quarter or something, you can say, Hey, I want to jump on a quick call just to give you like a quick, you know, update on the product, run through a demo or something, or, you know, I had some questions, um, you could use your advice on, um, you know, use, use VCs who are kind to you, um, as a resource, um, to ask questions as you go through the process. Cause, um, those are the folks you want to hold on to as far as your relationships, even if they never become an investor, um, you know, those, those relationships will be, um, valuable. Do you recommend also, uh, newsletters? 
you know, I've yeah, seen I, I, yeah. newsletters or, or are you saying it's more personal to get an actual direct email rather than like a BCC message? It both are great, you know, like, um, you know, and, and investor newsletters are, are, you know, less personal, of course. Um, and I do track them, you know, I, I look at them and see what's going on. But if I get like a, on top of, you know, investor newsletter or something like uh, a more tailored letter uh, or, or email that kind of just gives me a, a more succinct update on the things that I care about. Again, it's like um, communication 101, right? Like uh, it's, you know, pers- if you personalize things like that, people tend to pay attention a bit more. Yeah. And so this is kind of a two-part question though on that. How often should founders touch base with you? You mentioned maybe not necessarily by bi-weekly, but how often do you look for that? And that's not too much. Right. Yeah. And again, it, it depends. Like if it's actively something going on that like we need to communicate back and forth as you're like, I'm helping you with something. And it's, you know, every few days, like it's fine. But like if there's nothing, if there's nothing to talk about. Like I wouldn't just, you know, communicate just for the sake of, you know, sending an email. Um, but, you know, once a quarter is a pretty good, um, pretty good clip um, as far as just staying in touch. Because I think about like, you know, after three or three months or so, like, that's a good time to, to recheck in because things start to fall in you know, the back of the memory pretty quick. Um, but, you know, that's not burdensome in any way, um, you know, four times a year. Yeah. And then what metrics, what like KPIs or key performance indicators are you tracking for these companies that you want to keep in touch with that maybe have been too early, but you're, you're actively like, oh, that's interesting that that's changed. Yeah, no, I mean, and it depends on every company because every company's KPIs um, are and should be, you know, a, a bit different. Um, of course, revenue, like in the end, like companies, we want to see companies actually have customers and bring in revenue. So it's always the, you know, it's always the top line item that we're really curious about. But other than that, you know, um, even understanding like, you know, how, like what's going on with the team, like, because again, the team is like a big, important part of like any early stage company. Um, the founder being the most important piece, but like if you're adding added a new salesperson or something like that, and they have really like impressive background, knowing about those type of hires um, are really important. Um, you know, every company is different, so it could be um, you know updates on your uh, uh, your pipeline. You know what you're seeing at the top of the funnel is is always great you have, you know, design partners, anything like that, anything around like traction, right? Like, you know, things that relate back to customer conversations, customer retention, anything you can point to that um, are just, you know, positive signs of, of, a, of a growing business, I think are all fair game. Um, that's not very specific, again, because I think it, it depends on the, the company and, um, and also what the investor um, thinks. But, you know, those are the sorts of things I'm looking at in a at least an early stage company. No, that that definitely makes sense. In terms of a life cycle of that, your relationship with a founder, uh, I guess it's kind of twofold. One, maybe you just meet a founder, you're so excited, it fits within everything and you invest. Um, But two, let's say it's not that case. What is the usual life cycle that you see uh, for a founder relationship before you invest? Yeah, um, different every time, but like just thinking through examples, you know, um, well, I'll just use a story because I think it's it's um, instructive. Like we recently invested in a company back in April and I had been talking to that company for like two years, you know, um, and we as a firm had actually passed on them several times um, and kind of, you know, gave them instructions on different things we wanted to see. Um, you know, they were growing, but there were certain um, different markets we thought they should be approaching and uh, diversifying their customer base uh, because it was, you know, we felt it was too niche in the beginning. Uh, but they just continued to come back and show positive signs. And, um, you know, a couple, you know, one time the you know, deal round, what they were raising didn't really fit us. And, then, you know, that ended up not being what they ultimately raised on. It just went on for a while, but like, you know, finally we got really a lot of conviction around the company and, um, and finally wrote, you know, a pretty big check to them and we're super excited about it. And, 
And so like, it just goes to show like, um, just cause a, com- or a firm tells you they're a pass, um, it several times. I mean, this was at least two or three times we passed on, but like continue to stay in touch. Um, doesn't mean they won't end up someday being your investor. Um, and th- that company did a good job of constantly, you know, keeping me up to date and, um, and yeah, and when things are going well, it's great to see those things and, um, just keep engaging with those investors and really ask them, you know, I guess the big piece here is like, if a, if a firm does pass on you or it's not the right time, like ask them why, ask them more of the things that they can, that you could like, what would make this interesting for you all to, to bring us back for consideration. Um, and that's where you can actually going back to your original question about like our earlier question about KPIs, those are end up being the things you can share with that, um, that investor as you go forward. Um, and that's exactly what this company did and they did a great job of it. We're super excited about. Yeah, I um, I hear that. I have one more question or maybe sure. like a question around uh, relationships then we can go to a next chunk. But yeah. do you invest in founders that you just meet or um, do you see that building the relationship over the course of a year is more common and comfortable? Um both um <laughs> i mean if we do invest in a founder we just met like it just is like you know we're like oh this thing is growing so fast we got to get in on this um you know and we get conviction around it really fast and like just meet is like um you know not really it doesn't really paint the whole picture you know we're going to spend a couple months of in diligence um at least a month in diligence we're going to try to get to know the team we're going to get to try to know the founder a bit <clears throat> or well enough to like feel very a lot of conviction around it um but yeah it, it certainly happens like you know a, a company comes to us it's just the right time we all kind of get excited about when we invest um and then there are you know the others which is probably i want to say it's the more common scenario but there are a lot of companies that we spend a lot of time talking to that i mean especially on the early stage because like for us as a, like as a firm our strategy really is I love to talk to companies that are too early for us, like, or that are just an idea because like, yeah, honestly for us as a firm, like there's a, I mean, it's competitive even for venture firms to get in like with companies that build relationships. And we've been able to get, you know, push out other potential VCs because the company likes us a lot and we value those relationships. And I want to talk to the company well before they're, they're within our range um and start you know adding value and talking to them and i mean it takes a lot of effort on our part but we're happy to do it because um you know ultimately it it yields better results for us and you know the collateral positive is that hopefully it helps companies that even we don't invest in yeah no i love that I, uh, I'm going to pass the floor over now. I finished my chunk of relationship based. <laughs> uh, I'll pass it over to Elliot, who's raised his hand. And then I have a few other questions, um, more so about, you know, market trends and culture fit. But Elliot, my love, do you want to do a quick intro for yourself and then uh, ask away? Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm the founder of a company called Spira. Spira does biomanufacturing and we create carbon negative materials using algae, engineered algae. I work with a network of farms all over the world to kind of produce different materials for food, cosmetic, and textile companies. Um, Been around for a bit and have had hundreds of various investment (laughs) meetings now. I actually think one of the more important things is the metrics that you hold yourself accountable to uh, internally. Mm -hmm. So like, what is the desired investment take per investment raise or round of sorts? Um, what is your desired IRR as well? Um, or at least the metrics that you're looking to hit that are minimums, maximums, stuff like that. Yeah. Are you, sorry, I, was there, I didn't, was there a question there? Yeah. So like, for example, (laughs) what, what is your desired equity take whenever you make an investment in a company? Right. Right. Um, yeah, we don't have a, a target equity. Um, some firms do. Um, and it just, yeah, it depends on your thesis. I mean, I think we're more targeted at um what we consider like good like properly valued companies um and then like if it's a good company that's growing like you know we want to be a part of that um and so we don't 
yeah, there is a lot of math, like venture math that can go into um, your equity stake and preventing from dilution and like a certain, and like that's, that is important. Um, I'm not, I would never try to um, say that it's not important consideration for venture firms. Just for us, like at the earliest stages, like, um, you know, our upside, I think is, is very high, um, no matter what kind of equity piece we get. Um, so for us, it just is less of a consideration um, as yeah, far as like trying a, to nail down. A proper, yeah. a proper investment normally like returns the fund on whatever your investment actually amount is. And so based on your fund size, based on the amount of equity stake, I guess that would exactly. be whatever your, your desired minimum IRR is uh, for whatever your fund is. Right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So, so you yeah, can back exactly. calculate based on the size of the fund. That's right. Exactly. So for each fund, it's going to be a bit different. Um, but, you know, we have like, so one, um, and Elliot, I don't think you were on at the beginning, so this may help um, shed a little bit more light is that we have both a, uh, a fund and, and a um, angel network group. And so mm-hmm. like the cat, like, you know, you're not, when you're, when our investments go through the angel group, you're not like returning the fund, right? It's a bit of evergreen investments for each of these individual investors that need to. Like, you set up an SPV uh, for whatever your angels are going to invest yeah. in. Okay. We're technically we don't actually have an SPV. We're under an LLC, um, but uh, uh, it's kind of a unique structure. But uh, but yeah, you got the. I think you get the gist of it. Um, okay. But yeah, um, I think understanding those things when you're talking to a. Um, you know, venture investors is important. Oh yeah. How their, how their fund is structured. Like what I'm also really always curious. I tend to ask investors what their LP network is like in particular, Mm -hmm. just because I think you can have some really interesting shadow LPs or like your LPs can come along and help a lot with pro rata later on. So um, I'm going to just cut in real fast and just break down the acronyms for everyone. So SP special, Purpose vehicle. Vehicle, okay. yeah. LP yeah. is limited partner. Limited partner. Limited partner. Which compares yeah. to GP, which is general, general partner. partner. Thank you. Thank All you. together now. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But for, for everyone, uh, just in context, LPs are investors into funds that do not have, I mean, maybe Josh, you can kind of add some additional color here, but don't have a um, you know, management stake. They're putting the money in Josh's hands trusting that Josh and his colleagues are going to make the best investment uh, and returns for their funds. And so that's why they're called limited partners, whereas general partners are the ones that have that. That So I'm sorry not to interrupt. I just, I heard a lot of acronyms and I want to make sure everyone was sure. awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's a good point. Um, I guess, yeah, one of the, the questions I have in particular in regards to that, so for a pro rata stake, which is as definitionally a, investment after you invest basically mm-hmm. like maintaining an equity stake in a company uh does your fund have a particular process for that like for your portfolio companies generally a fund has um 50 of their fund is dedicated to like primary investments and then 50 percent is reserved for follow-on stake and um do you, do you have a particular process associated with that is there rhyme or reason in the companies that you double down on um, yeah, so we're pretty much down the center for that. Um, we do reserve half of our um, capital for follow-on investments. Um, and, you know, the, the rhyme and the reason is, you know, basically we know that a certain percentage of our um, investments uh, won't pan out um, and that we want to double down on our, our, um, uh, our winners. So if we have 10, you know, companies in the fund and only, you know, three or four of those actually make it like, we want to make sure that those that we're actually writing even bigger checks um, in, the, in mm-hmm. the companies that, um, that we do that are our winners. So, um, you know, our process is on a case by case basis, you know, when uh, at one of these companies comes back up for, you know, investment opportunity, we're looking at it um, frankly as a, you know, we have to evaluate it almost as a new investment. Um, and, uh, and again, that's, it's all done basically to get that, uh, you know, with the target of 30% IRR or, you know, three X in our fund or something, you know, so like, um, those are all, those are all back, uh, we back into that from, you know, what we see the opportunity is. 
Okay. And in, have you had multiple funds and like, are you in the middle of raising a new fund? Is it something where you, you said part of your fund is evergreen, these the angel in- investment checks, I'm yeah. assuming that that's like a little bit smaller. And then the main fund itself, have you had multiple versions of that fund? And are you in the middle of raising a new fund? Um, we are not in the middle of raising a new fund. So blue, um, you know, it's, we've been around for about, just give you a bit more history here. Like Blue's been around for about 13 years. We are almost exclusively that um, the angel network group type of model cool. uh, based on kind of some of the uh, wins that we've had in cybersecurity. Uh, it's been a big part of our portfolio. We kind of used that momentum to raise our first fund um, and had our, our first close back in, or sorry, our last close back in uh, May last year. And so that's a $25 million fund um that kind of invest can help kind of lead some of our deals but then we can top off even a bit um from our from our angel group um so so yeah we're on fund one but um it's uh not exactly a fund one scenario in terms of like mm-hmm. we just gone to market but um we've been investing for about 13 years it's just we've added this new uh, investment structure for us which is a bit new cool. and um and we have full intentions of uh you know, raising fun too and going bigger and, and better as uh, firms do. Yeah. What do, what do partner meetings look like? Like, do you do weekly partner meetings? Um, does everybody have to champion a deal whenever you set up those kind of meetings? Like talk, talk through some of the like insider baseball of what it looks like um, whenever you actually go to present a company. Yeah. Happy to talk through that. Um, so yeah, every venture firm is different, um, but we we operate on an investment committee uh, basis, and we do weekly meetings where we have a five person um, committee that evaluates um, deals. So, you know, a big part of my job is is tech scouting away. I have you know a few conversations um, with uh, potential companies. You know, it could be again back to our earlier conversation, Donia. Like it could be over the course of a year or two, but. Um, but eventually when a company kind of fits our thesis and I think it is a, is a good opportunity, I'll bring it to our investment committee uh, again, which makes weekly. And if we get a green light from there, um, we have a majority decision. So um, we need three of the, the five members to say, uh, say, yeah, we like this deal. We'll go into diligence and try to, um, you know, get through that process within a month and then have the check in, in the bank uh, soon after that. Um, so pretty straightforward, um, you know, different, Different firms operate differently, but that kind of um, is the model that we've found that works best for us. Cool. Um, do you normally have like a deal memo that you write up or like what what's the kind of materials that you present? Normally, if you have five partners and each of them is trying to like present a, a company during that meeting, if you only have an hour, that's not much time, right? Or like, I don't know how long your investment meetings are, but um, yeah, like let's say each partner has like 20 minutes or so right to present a company mm-hmm. how do you how do you go about doing that do you like present a check that you got from the company and work through and be like hey these are some things that i think are good these are some things that i think are bad do you write up mm-hmm. a memo um how does that go during the meetings themselves what kind of information because I, i'm assuming that is what the purpose of the diligence is for is to dive into mm-hmm. some of those materials and then write your own kind of like summary of whatever you've seen um mm-hmm. but yeah yeah walk through some of that yeah, sure. Um, so the the meeting, so the investment committee meetings actually we bring the company in to present for half oh, cool. an hour. Um, okay. So they get to meet the investment committee, and then it's just easier that you know they get to ask questions directly to the company, and then we vote from there. Um, and then we have separate meetings to go over due diligence. Um, and so like once we do that, we uh, me and like another partner will basically lead the the due diligence process. Um, and we'll report, report back to the rest of the IC on a regular basis in a separate meeting. And then, um, you know, uh, then we take a you know a final vote once uh, we get to the end of our due diligence, uh, which includes a due diligence report um, and uh, some of the other materials that we kind of collect and uh, present to the uh, the IC. And then, yeah, so that's that's our that's our process. But the company actually gets to meet the IC, which we think is important because, um, yeah, it, it's. For our, yeah, it just helps sell the company without us having to kind of present on their behalf, I guess. Got you. And you got 27 partners in the fund, right? In the firm, it seems like. Angel, those are our angel partners. So again, okay, got it, so got it. Again, back the to actual our, like, firm yeah. is, is a little different. 
Yeah, and it's all under the blue umbrella. Uh, we're getting to okay. a little bit of the, the weeds on the blue structure, but uh, so we have, you, you'll see we have 28 uh, or it's 27 or 28 partners. They're mm -hmm. all under the LLC um, and they invest their, their own capital um, into our deals. And then under that structure, we have um, uh, a fund as well. And a few of those angel partners are involved in, are also involved in the fund. Um, and so that's how we kind of structured it. Cool. Um, yeah. I mean, one of the things I noticed is that you seem to have like a bit of a thesis with cybersecurity and it's just basically on the basis of like what y'all have been successful for, like half of your mm -hmm. portfolio is cybersecurity startups. When a company comes along that is not cyber oriented, what prompts a decision in that realm? Because like if the experience is cybersecurity, like I'm more yeah. interested in the edge cases. Like what are the things that are weird, unique, different that uh, the firm has been like, yeah, this is awesome. And I will jump in here and add that we <laughs> spent about 20 minutes talking about that at the beginning. Oh, okay. Never mind. That. Never mind. <laughs> so Don't worry about it. Don't I, worry about it. I'll, I'll okay. let you I'll know. That's a great question. All right. Question, we, can, we can move on. That's a good question. It's a great question because, you know, it was great because we've covered it too. No. <laughs> okay. Tight. But I think awesome. what, what Josh, what Josh just talked about, or Josh, if you want to go ahead and maybe give a, a just a succinct summary. Yeah, real quick. I mean, um, you know, the cyber is half of what we invest in, but we do actively pursue other uh, basically B2B staff companies um, as the other half of the portfolio. That mainly goes to the Angel Network Group um, because, again, the cyber fund is specifically focused on cybersecurity, as the name um, alludes to. The uh, There are edge cases like uh, True Made Foods, which is a you know healthy condiment company. Um, those, those really far edge cases that are outside of cyber and B2B SaaS, a lot of times those come to us from other syndication partners we've had in the past that we really kind of trust as far as like their expertise in this field. And we, you know, evaluate it, um, try to get smart on it and, uh, and, you know, make the investment, but we're not actively going out there and scouting for those type of companies. And a lot of them just come to us from, from opportunity basis. Um, you know, our thesis is not so strict that we can't make those um, types of investments and get on a case by case basis. We'll certainly consider them. So that's the that's the quick answer. <laughs> okay. And, and I cool. um yeah. I want to throw in here too because I know we're just in in terms of of timing. I wanted to ask, you know, kind of not not a hardball question, but you being in the industry, Josh, that on average, female led companies get around five percent of equity funding that's the VC funding that's available. We saw this past year, um, I think it was the stat from 2021 or 2022, I think it was 2021, um, that there was less than 2% of funding that was allocated um, to female-led companies. I can also state stats of, you know, founders of color that have had less, less access to capital, uh, female-founded companies, female um, founders that are, um, you know, of color found that have gotten less access to capital as well, very inclusively. Um, can you talk about maybe is when you're doing these interviews of, of different companies, especially in the B2B SaaS world, right? Um, how you go about having those conversations internally, maybe around implicit bias or um, around just making sure that your portfolio is is representative. Um, and I can talk about how there are higher returns for female <laughs> companies statistically. Um, plug, Josh, but maybe you can talk about talk about that. No, I mean, it's an extremely um, important question and um, one that um, it's been um, a few years ago now that we really tried to start um, addressing actively. Um, you know, I think um, there's a couple pieces there's the one of like discussing you know our own biases and making sure that we're you know thinking about that but the, i think one of the bigger pieces is just like it's just pipeline you know like um making sure that you're diversifying your the, the companies that are actually coming into the pipeline so like okay we have this you know, certain bubble of a network um you know does that include a fair representation of um minorities and uh, female founders and, you know, just kind of like how I was talking about, you know, we find opportunities with, 
you know other companies through our syndication of um, other um, other investors. We've like very actively tried to do that on our pipeline front. Um, so um, making sure that we're starting to like or we have been and uh, continue to network with um, groups and other VCs that take um, that have a network with that is very you know. Um, representative, representative of, you know, those, those different groups. So for instance, like we work closely with Citrine Angels, um, which is a group in DC that focuses um, closely on um, investing in uh, female led founders. So we actually have um, a member of our staff who is a female who joins some of their uh, meetings on a regular basis because, and, and looks for opportunities through their network. Um, and, um, there's another group in New York called Hearst Labs. They invest, um, uh, um, strictly in female led founders as well. And so we're working with them closely to find opportunities. And so, um, the big piece is like looking for those networks outside of our own and, and continuing to push. And like, we have a ton of work to sell to do on it. Um, but we're always actively having those conversations on if we're doing enough. And, um, and yeah, you know, I, I, it's, it's hard to say, um, in a year or two, like how much, um, that has paid off. Cause I think we have a lot more to work to do, but I'm happy to say that we just invested in a company this summer that was a uh, female founder led, and, um, we're really excited about it. And we have, um, a few other companies that, um, you know, um, have, uh, minority founders as well, um, that have been made in the last few years, some of those being cybersecurity. So, uh, really excited about that. That's awesome. And in terms then on the inverse for, you know, companies to get into your pipeline, right? Would that be just finding groups that are actively, so for myself as a female founder, finding the Citrine Angels of the world, finding those networks and pockets where these conversations are happening and just making sure that I'm there, I'm in the room, I'm, my name is being tossed around. Um, I'll also add that when we were in the process of fundraising, I joined a poker league in <laughs> in DC and it's for the strict reason that one of the investors we were speaking with talked about how he hosted a poker league with other tech founders and angel mm-hmm. investors. And he actually asked me, do you play poker on the call when he brought it up? And I said, of course I play poker. I fucking <laughs> love poker. I'm a fucking shark at poker. Um, and he, the next event, this is a true story. The next event was, you know, six days from then I hung up our call and I Googled, how do you play poker? Um, and <laughs> that's how I was able to get in the room was, you know, you make it till you make it. Uh, mentality, yeah. but yeah, do you have any added insights maybe on on the founder perspective on how do you make sure you're showing up and taking space? Yeah, I mean, it's a great it's a great story because I think I mean, it's just like it, you know, I think it just goes back to what it takes to be a founder, which is like just hustle um, your ass off um, for excuse my French, but like um, finding opportunities like that to make sure you're in the in the room and even even if you don't know how to play poker you can figure it out pretty quick it's you know it's not that complicated let me let me tell you Josh, um, i also got a taste for whiskey because i'm <laughs> the only one in the room drinking yeah. wine at a table and i'll tell you the one of the moments that'll keep me smiling until my dying day was taking the guy in who invited me all in and winning that hand and <laughs> him, the host of the night looking over his name was jim the host of the night looking over at Jim and saying, wherever you found Danya, make sure you find more like her. And <laughs> I will forever take that to my, to my dying day. But uh, yeah, I think the importance of, of just taking space and, and being comfortable taking space. And that's something that I, I don't even want to gender it, but that I have had to really learn how to take space, even in our MBA program, right, Josh, mm-hmm. I've shared with you about our program, I think was 20% women. And it was a, you know, we can talk all day and that's not the point of this call about um, just being comfortable taking space. Yeah. That's my, that's my big thing. I want to, I, I know we're kind of coming up on time, so I want to lightning round these uh, few questions for you, but sure. really when you're 
when I've had to change my perspective on relationships with investors as not being the holier than holy thou God of having the money (laughs) for, for founders, but rather we as founders are providing value to you as investors. You have the money, but we have the rocket ship and that we're building. And so making sure it's a good culture fit, you know, early on, um, can you talk about what you look for in terms of making sure there's a culture fit? Because you are getting in bed, excuse that term, (laughs) but you are getting in bed with these people who are giving you money and now they have a say in what you're doing. So how do you make sure there's a culture fit? And are there any questions that founders ask that you just immediately give you a red flag and you're like, absolutely no, no, no. Yeah, those are uh, great questions. Um, you know, the, the the biggest thing we look for is um, like what we call kind of coachability or like you know willing to kind of listen um, because we do think of it as a um, as a relationship, especially in these early stages. And, and part of the value we want to add as our group is that all of our angel partners are former like founders or or um, uh, uh, executives and you know big big tech companies. So we want them to feel that like again like they don't have to we don't expect our founders to follow everything that we tell them as advice it's just advice but we want to make sure that it feels like it's a conversation and that they're not just like we're just trying to get money and we just want to go like there's plenty of venture firms out there that will support um founders that just want money and just want to you know build and and never talk to their investors again uh but that's just not a good fit for us so like we're looking for like uh um, a founder that really seems to um, be coachable in a way. And, and sometimes there's, you know, tricks to figuring that out, but um, there's some definitely um, red flags that pop up during conversations. Um, but, you know, I think the biggest red flags are like founders that like <laughs> in a conversation, be whatever it is you're talking about uh, kind of get argumentative about, you know, whatever, whatever the question is that a, um, a VC ask. And, and look, VCs will ask stupid questions sometimes, like to your point, like, you know, the business better than anyone else. Um, you probably know the topic and the, in that, like VCs aren't spending as much time as you are, um, in the industry that you're in and that specific thing that you're building. So you're going to get stupid questions. Um, but knowing how to like, you know, be diplomatic with those, um, I think, um, is important. Um, but also, you know, for your sake, look for VCs that are also willing to say that, you know, they don't know everything, right. Um, because that's an important part of it as well. Cause they, they may need to be coached on, on certain things that you're doing or, um, that are within the business that they just don't have, um, as much insight on. So, um, yeah, we're just looking for folks that, um, yeah can build a good relationship with it. Yeah, I, I love that. And then in terms of market trends, we had a crazy market <laughs> crash in tech specifically, um, yeah. uh, really around January, 2023. And we, through this year, have been impending recession potentially. Yeah. Um, can you talk about for where you are in the earlier stage? I know late stage is a completely different conversation in terms of valuation, yeah. but for early stage, are you still seeing market instability coming into conversation with where you're investing and how do we as founders know the right time to, to start those conversations versus, versus hold off? Yeah. You know, none of us have a, a crystal ball as far as like what the market's going to look like. And honestly, for um, early stage companies, like now is, I, I honestly feel is, is as good as time to raise as ever, um, especially if it, if it's one of your earliest fundraising, because like, you know, what happened to a lot of companies um, a year or two ago was they ra- they may have raised on a super high valuation, right? Um, which, you know, that's kind of your job as a, um, as a founder is to get the best valuation you can. Um, but unfortunately it's kind of come back to bite folks um, in the sense that they, they have to do a down round or a flat round or something. And it just doesn't look as good. Um, you know, if valuation is like, or if dilution is your worry, like I always tell founders, like raise, raise less and raise more often um, is a good way around that. And, you know, it, I think even, I mean, even seed stage companies are still getting valuations that 
are like reasonable to what was before like the bubble we saw, right? Like it's not, you're not going to get the valuation you or likely, you know, I'm not going to see you won't, but likely you won't get the valuation you would have gotten a year ago. But that's also okay. Like you're, you're starting from a baseline here and um, it's only up from there as long as you can continue to um, hit on your KPIs and, you know, everything. So I would say like, if you're ready to raise, like go out there and start, um, start talking to investors. Um, and if you're, if your plan makes sense and, you know, the company's ready to go, like you'll find the investor that fits. Um, cause there's a lot of, there is a lot of dry powder out there that's ready to go and there's companies getting funded. So like, yeah, get out there and, and start talking to investors. I love that. Um, I have two last questions. My first of the last is, um, there's a narrative of ask for money, you'll get advice. Ask for advice, you'll get money. Um, <laughs> do you believe that? Do you see that when people come to you asking for advice? Do you open your checkbook? Um, what is the secret <laughs> button there? And then my second question is what excites you about, you know, going forward, market trends, companies, um, all the likes. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean, good. It, it, it's not as simple, um, but you know, good relationships um, do yield better results. Like, you still have to have a company that we're excited about, um, but I do think there's a lot to that. Um, you know, and that kind of goes back to a lot of the theme of the conversation tonight, which is you know, start building those relationships. And a lot of good ways to do that is just ask for advice. Um, I think, and the thing too is like. Um, just as I said, like we, like we as investors don't always know that much or we'll never know as much as you know about your company. Um, you know, especially as an early stage invet or early stage company and a first time founder, like use the advice that you can get from investors, um, and start to collect data points. And again, like everyone who's listening to this should take this, everything I say as a grain of salt, because like, I am just one investor's opinion on a lot of things. So like use it as a data point and all that against all the other investors you're talking to, but use that as a, as an opportunity to get smart on venture capital, because I think the thing that um, early stage founders have the biggest disadvantage on is like, they don't spend all of their time thinking about, you know, IRRs or MOICs or any of these acronyms that uh, we had mentioned um, earlier, or like, you know, how a fund thinks about success. Um, but if you can start talking to investors, ask for advice and get smart on venture capital, um, it will help you yield better results as far as how you go about your fundraise, but it will also help you, you know, start to build relationships with um, firms that you think will actually be advantage. And back to another point, which is that it takes time to get to know if there's a fit and if you like that firm. And if someone's really nice to you and gives you advice and seems to be supportive, like that's a good, that's a good sign that, you know, there could be a good long-term relationship there probably more than you can figure out in just a month of, month of due diligence. Yeah. So, you know. and then in terms of just last note of what's getting sure. you most excited, um, what, you know, what do you see? And maybe it's the sexy subjects of artificial intelligence, <laughs> chat GPT. I've seen companies, I've joked with my friends that, you know, for example, Elliot, um, who's more an algae of how do you integrate artificial intelligence into algae? How do you integrate artificial intelligence into the, you know, diagnostics, um, more, you know, kind of facetiously, but what, what's getting you excited in the market? Yeah. I mean, look, AI is great. And like, I think there's me on the cybersecurity front where we're paying attention, like there's be tons of implications and, um, you know, again, I'm not the I'm not the technical expert as far as what that means, um, but I am looking for all kinds of interesting opportunities. And I think it does seem to be one of those big um, momentous kind of uh, ground moving moments that um, could shake up a lot of different industries, which should create a lot of opportunities. Um, but just in terms of the market, like I know it's been a tough year for founders, um, but I think it's going to create an incredible amount of opportunity um, for early stage founders in the next year or two, um, especially as like, you know, you think of some of these growth stage companies that are going to go, that aren't going to raise, they're going to get gobbled up in MMAs or MNAs. And there's going to be um, white space that starts to appear just from like, you know, um, a lot of these companies kind of merging together. And um, I think that 
I think that the the kind of controlled burn of the forest, so to say, uh, for companies that are still around afterwards, it's going to be it's going to be great. I think there's going to be a lot of really cool companies that come out of all of this. That's awesome. So, yeah. Well, Josh, uh, I, I really appreciate um, all of your insights today. And was there, you know, maybe I'll leave the last word for you of if there is anything that was not covered, is there something you'd like to impart as as one final nugget? Or, um, if there is a way to get in touch with you as well, if you want to throw that in at the end. Uh, but I'll leave the floor to you and just say thank you everyone for listening up to this point. And Josh, final word is yours. Yeah, I mean, um, I think for early stage investors, I the one thing I, I always try to tell them as they think, especially if they've never raised venture capital, um, you know, you should always think of venture capital as rocket fuel um, and rocket fuel is, is only for rocket ships. Um, if you get rocket fuel into a Camry, like it's going to explode. So like um, it's only, you know, venture capital makes up a small percentage of successful businesses in this, um, in this country. So, you know, think deeply about like if your business is truly, you know, needing venture capital or how long you can bootstrap or like if you're at the right point, um, because, um, it can, it can make a successful business grow, um, to, you know, unbelievable heights, um, uh, but it can also, um, uh, be a detriment to some businesses. Um, so just, you know, think about that. Um, it will change your business in a lot of ways. Um, and, uh, some of those are good and some, maybe some of those are bad. Hmm. I love that. Thank you for that. Um, and if people want to connect with you, what's the best way? Yeah. Um, feel free to share my, share my email after this. Um, I'm at jmiller at blueventures.com, um, blue with no E. Um, and, uh, but yeah, <laughs> super techie. Um, that's what we're going for. Uh, but yeah, so, uh, feel free to share it, um, in an email or whatever, um, after this, but, um, they're welcome to email me. And again, always happy to chat with founders. Um, even if it's not with our thesis, I love talking to folks and, learning about their ideas and offering um, any help I can, um, however small. Awesome. Well, I'm going to clap you off, Josh. Um, thank you so much. And um, we'll make sure to share the information. Thanks so much for everyone. Yeah. For